Hello, dear listeners. This is Maaza Siyum from the African Alliance with the second in a series of episodes focused on women in leadership. If you have been following any of the recent conversations on COVID-19 vaccine inequity, you are probably already well acquainted with Dr. Yodi Alakija. Her Twitter bio describes her as an activist for social justice and the mother of a gorgeous Olympian. She's also the co-chair of the African Vaccine Delivery Alliance and one of the most vocal advocates for an end to vaccine apartheid. In this episode, Dr. Alakija and I talked about advocacy and community engagement and African accountability, all areas she is very passionate about. But as you'll hear, the topic that gets this activist for social justice most fired up is the continued fight against another pandemic, the pandemic of patriarchy. Dr. Alakija gave me just a small taste of the challenges she faces as a confident and outspoken African woman in leadership on the continent. We could honestly have gone on for a whole other hour, but I am so grateful to Dr. Alakija for giving us as much time as she did, despite a schedule that I know is full of countless demands. Just one small note regarding numbers. We discussed COVID-19 vaccine rollout and Dr. Alakija gave us quite a few detailed figures. Since the numbers are constantly changing, please make sure to go to the links in the program notes to get the most recent data. With that, I thank you for listening. I am so grateful to our amazing guest and I hope that you enjoy the show. Dr. Yodi Alakija, co-chair of the African Union's African Vaccine Delivery Alliance, thank you so much for taking time to be on the COVID-19 Conversations podcast today. Thank you, Maza. It's wonderful to be with you. Excellent. So I will dive right in and ask you, as I have asked a few other people, what did your life look like in January 2020? Before any of us realized that this pandemic would take over the world, What was your day-to-day life like and how did you think you would actually be spending the next couple of years? Well, it certainly did not look like this. Um, <laughs> January 2020, as news filtered through, I was actually at home in Fiji, uh, my second home. Uh, my husband and I had gone to spend a couple of months together and um, it transformed my life because, of course, I had been so involved in the response. But trying to look at the positives and everything. I mean, our family was able to, our little family, my husband, my daughter and I, chose that we wanted to all be together, whatever the future was going to bring. Because at that stage, of course, it was just very, it was very unknown. It was a novel virus and we didn't know where it would be. Today, my life is almost literally 18 to 20 hours COVID response. You know, initially it was advising governments, it was talking to various people in the global health world and trying to figure out just what we were going to do, trying to influence and advocate and agitate as much as possible for the global, proper global leadership, both globally and also on the African continent in, in dealing with the virus. It's changed my life um, to no end. But on the positive, I've also encountered and met some incredible people through this process and just seen some some of the best sides the, the best and the worst sides of humanity but I choose to focus on the best as we've worked on this together. Mm. 
And I'm sure that everyone who listens to this podcast is well aware of the dire situation of vaccine rollout on the African continent, which I know is where your area of focus and your passion is. I think the numbers showed today that just 4% of people on the continent have been fully vaccinated. This while 66% of people in the UK have been fully vaccinated and the US has already rolled out 2.5 million booster shots. So we are nowhere near reaching WHO's goal of 40% of all people fully vaccinated by the end of this year. I know that you have been a clear and loud advocate for ramping up access to vaccines around the continent, across the continent. Where do you think the balance lies between pushing for increased reallocation of existing vaccines. So we hear about rich countries, you know, possibly being able to hand over vaccines that they're hoarding or that they've pre-purchased. So where does the balance lie between that and versus ramping up global manufacturing? Because that's also another area that we hear a lot about, you know, waiving IP rights, increasing manufacturing capability across the world. Well, first of all, I mean, I think, let me go back to what you said about the 40%, the WHO 40% and the Africa 4%. I mean, the exact figures are far less than 4%. I don't know where that 4% figure has come from, because there are 1.3 billion of us approximately on the African continent. And to date, only 55 million as of perhaps Monday this week, 55 million were fully vaccinated. So that is nowhere near 4%. Of the 178 million vaccines that have been delivered in Africa so far, 108 million of those have come from bilateral deals with largely China, Morocco, and um, some other North African countries account for the majority. So when you look at sub-Saharan Africa, the number is way less than 1%. And I think it's really important that we make that distinction because all of the numbers are lumped up together and it appears as though you know, the global multilateral schemes or the Africa purchasing agreement has brought together 4%. No, a lot of this has been bilateral. It has been deals with China, some with Russia, and also some sort of swap deals in between governments. For instance, I think Germany and Kenyan government just came to an agreement where Germany had given Kenya, I think, swapped 1.5 million vaccines for them to get along with, get on with their vaccination program. So that the issue of inequity in itself, before we get to should it be distribution or should it be IP waivers. It shouldn't be either or. It needs to be both and. There is so much that it needs to be done. And I have, yes, screamed till I was blue in the face and till I got sick and tired of hearing my own voice. My, my daughter, who, who I've referenced earlier, would say to me that, you know, Mama, are you not tired of saying the same thing over and over again as I would do these interviews. And so, so you sort of started to ask what my life looked like pre-COVID, you know, and, 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 and how it changed. I, I hadn't envisaged being permanently on television um, or on radio programs, just so much in the forefront of advocacy, because I had thought there would be a much louder call from the rest of the world that it wouldn't be left to one or two individuals who were who had the you know some would say sheer courage to stand up to the global 
north and say that you're not doing enough and we're not going to take this. So for a long time, it felt like I was the lone voice screaming in the wilderness and almost this sort of crazy people would say to me that, you know, you look so cross. Um, you know, at one point, somebody, a friend who's from a global north sort of country told me that the next time I get on television to beg for vaccines for poor people in Africa, I needed to take off my pearls and my gold jewelry. I mean, it was, it was, it was such an incredible, you know, experience just to hear how negative people were about advocating for what was so clearly desperately needed and what those of us who are in the global health sphere could see and look down the line and see that if we didn't start to speak now, we were going to get left behind. And so here we are now, eight months later, and we are left behind. And when I say eight months later, I say eight months from when the rest of the world started to really get out their vaccines and start their vaccination programs, we have been left behind. So it's not whether we go for the TRIPS waiver, which absolutely must be done. And there is a moment of opportunity in this crisis, not just for COVID vaccines, but for medicines more generally for Africa, for vaccines, be it for routine immunizations. We can't sit back and allow this ever to happen to us again. What if there's another pandemic? There will be inevitably. You know, if we don't stand up now and call for justice, health justice and call for equity, then we are doing a disservice to our children and to generations to come. You know, we, we, we went through this with HIV AIDS. Millions of people died who needn't have died because there wasn't enough of a voice. And yet here we are in 2021 in the middle of the worst health crisis in a hundred years. I say often that a once in a hundred year event demands a once in a hundred year level of global solidarity and cooperation. We haven't seen that solidarity. So we don't just need countries to share vaccines to, to, you know, they call it donating doses. I disagree with the term donate doses. It's not a donation. I say that they need to share the vaccines that they're hoarding or, or hedging their bets with and, you know, holding back in case they're going to need them for boosters. We need to vaccinate the whole world as equitably and as quickly as possible. But we also need to ramp up production at the same time. It's not, do we do one or do we do the other? We need to share technology. We need to, to, to begin the technology transfer. And we need to also do the hard work that it takes to get the vaccines from ports into people's arms. Right now, we have lots of promises and pledges and commitments and big talk at big conferences, but I'm not seeing the plan for concrete action. And we're in a moment that demands action. It is not about talk. It is a moment for action from all. Mm -hmm. And we will get back to a little bit of the details of the actual rollout later. But I wanted to ask you one other thing about advocacy. As you know, African Alliance engages constantly with civil society groups around the continent on issues related to COVID-19 generally and vaccine access and vaccine equity specifically. Much of our focus to date has been on targeting pharmaceutical companies and the leaders of rich countries who are blocking the TRIPS waiver. 
Um, recently, though, our civil society comrades have started to agitate for spending a bit more time focusing on African leaders and making sure that our leaders are also more accountable with their actions, with their agreements, with the way that resources are being allocated. I was pleased to see after watching you at a recent press conference with WHO Afro that you seem to agree with our civil society partners. So I wanted to ask you a little bit about that. You know, how would you advise our civil society partners who now want to do more to push African leaders. And one question that we've gotten from one of our civil society partners is what is the right balance between presenting an image of African unity and pushing certain African leaders who we think are not acting in ways that we are proud of. So what would your advice be to us on that? I know that you agree with the notion of pushing African leaders and how would you advise our civil society comrades to push that forward? That is an excellent, excellent question. It's a difficult balance between maintaining the need to decolonize and the need for African leadership and being proud about the fact that we as Africans have chosen to do something in this moment of crisis. But it's also a little bit sad that the bar is so low, that we have felt that, well, just because we have done the basics of a response. Yeah, so in some instances, we're claiming that we've done so, so well in Africa because we had such great leadership. It's almost a reverse effect in a way because we've pushed this narrative. The rest of the world have then said, well, since you guys are doing so well, you all don't need those vaccines. (laughs) Um, But the reality is not that we had done that well. And I think the data will show later when it comes to excess deaths, but it's that we have pushed a particular narrative, which is linked to what your CSO leaders are saying, that we haven't wanted to critique or criticize Africa in this pandemic. We have chosen instead to criticize the rest of the world. But you know, there's a saying in my language that if you point one finger outside, the other four turn inward towards yourself. You need to look at yourself. We need to do, there needs to be a self-examination on several points. And I think the self-examination is number one on how aggressive was African leadership. We were not aggressive enough. When I say leadership, I mean political leadership. A lot of it has been left to health leaders, global health leaders, within the continent who have advocated some private sector people who got into the into the battle for for getting vaccines to Africa. But we have failed to understand that this is not a health crisis. It is not just an economic crisis. It's a political crisis. It's a geopolitical crisis. It's a diplomatic crisis. And we needed greater diplomatic push. So that's from that perspective. And then the second perspective, I would say, and I mean, from that first perspective, I have to also give credit where credit is due, you know, and for for whatever anyone else wants to critique the South African response or the South African president. I have to say that President Ramaphosa, in his leading of the Africa Union as his chair role when the pandemic hit, did a great job of trying to pull that together. Africa as a whole, as a response, And also, you know, when you look at the rest of Africa, South Africa really has done the best in terms of access to vaccines and an ability to roll out. And that has been due to his leadership of the wider response and the fact that he was right there in the hot seat. It also speaks to my angst as to the fact that there was not more bilateral leadership from other countries, be be it from Ethiopia, be it from Nigeria, be it from 
the DRC, Kenya began to come to the table when President Kenyatta was in, in the UK recently and had to answer very directly questions about vaccines. But up to that point, it was left very much to Africa CDC or to global health leaders and, and people like myself who was just seen as, you know, just yelling into a void. For instance, the, the Prime Minister of Barbados, oh my goodness, what a woman, you know, she made the speech of all speeches at the UN General Assembly the other day. That speech that she made is a speech that I wanted to hear every single African leader making. Where are the vaccines? What is going on with this world? It is not enough that you call us here to have a meeting, to talk. What is going to happen to our people? There's another saying in my language about, you know, let us not bring ourselves out like an eight-day-old baby. Let us not expose ourselves to the world. But there comes a point where we have to be accountable. And we have to say to our own leadership that it is not just the world that has failed us, but that you also have failed us in this moment from a political perspective. We have shut down the conversation. And because we want to protect our sovereignty, as it were, as Africans, we also, the activists within Africa, and also some of it is fear of power, have shut down the conversation. But truth dies in the dark, and we need to open it up to the light. Mm -hmm. Yes, and that is really powerful. And, you know, I have a follow-up question for you from people who maybe don't have the, the same platform that you have. You know, often people say to us, you know, we hear all this alphabet soup, you know, there's Avda, there's Afro, there's Avat. Where can we as civil society put our voice in and sit at a table and be listened to, to kind of give our feedback on some of these agreements or deals that are going on that we're not fully aware of? Well, let me say that, that when you say the platform that you have, I would argue that everybody has a platform, everybody has a Twitter account, everybody has a constituency. I mean, I now have this platform because I made so much noise. It's the analogy about getting on the table. And if they don't give you a seat at the table, you pull up a chair. If they don't let you sit at that chair, you, you get on that chair and you climb your way onto the table. Certainly, and I've done that physical demonstration at conferences in the past, it makes them sit up and look up and say, what the heck is going on? And then you're able to say what you need to say. So I think, first of all, we need to recognize our own agency and we need to take it and grab it with both hands um, as Africans. I think we cannot wait to be invited when our lives are at stake. We cannot wait to be given a voice when literally everything is conspiring to shut down that voice. As to the alphabet soup, that's a very good question. Of course, AFRO is WHO, Africa Regional Office, ABDA and the various other acronyms. You know, the Africa Union Commission and Africa Union as a group last year at the beginning of the pandemic under President Ramaphosa of South Africa decided that the Africa strategy to COVID would be three-pronged one of which was going to be called CONVAC, that people don't hear a lot about, which was going to deal with scientific trials and, and the sort of more science-based aspect of vaccine trials, et cetera, and therapeutics for the pandemic. That was one pillar. There was going to be a second pillar, which was the Africa Vaccine Acquisition Task Team, which is a VAT, which was tasked with scouring, as they said at the time, the earth, going to meet with manufacturers initially with Serum Institute of India, a deal that then, of course, did not go through, to try to purchase a pooled purchase mechanism, as it were, for vaccines for Africa. This is after we learned that 
COVAX was only going to supply 20% of the needs initially that Africa, well, they initially only said they were going to do 20%. They have since expanded their ambition. So that is a VAT. Convac is led by Professor Slim Karim and Sambaso, a couple of uh, distinguished um, colleagues from the African continent. And a VAT is sort of, you know, being co-led by, by various other people, um, including the Afrexim Bank, Africa CDC, and, and others. And then the third pillar, which came on last online, was the Africa Vaccine Delivery Alliance, AVDA, which I co-chair together with Dr. John and Kegasong. And our remit was really to ensure that we got vaccines, all vaccines, be they the ones that were purchased by African, African countries themselves through the AVAT mechanism and Afrexim, be they the ones that are brought in through COVAX, or be they the ones that are purchased bilaterally, directly by countries, our remit was broader, and it was to ensure that those vaccines get from ports to arms. For me, I always say when I think of ABDA, I think hashtag ports to arms, because once those vaccines arrive in ports, even the ones from COVAX initially, there was no funding in place to get those vaccines from the airport into vaccination centers. There was no plan in place for vaccinations. There was no plan in place for demand creation. And so when you talk about, you know, vaccines being Malawi, for instance, which I hear often that were delivered close to expiry date and had to be burned. The reason they were burned was because they were just almost literally dropped at the airport and the plane left. And so our job, so this is what AVDA is. It is a coalition, it is not part, it is not an institution, but it is a partnership and an alliance of willing, <laughs> the coalition of the willing, as John and Kegestong often would call it. And I was invited to chair that at the beginning, at sort of March of this year, to ensure that we have a coordinated African effort to get vaccines once they're on the continent from ports to arms. So in a way, when back to your talk about the platform, my agitation, my advocacy on vaccine equity started way before AVDA. You know, AVDA was added to that pile, as it were. So AVDA did not provide that platform. That platform existed. I mean, I convened and chaired a meeting together with Wilton Park, um, an agency of the British government in February, March of this year, around getting vaccine equity in Africa, way before it was around then that John and Kegasong invited me to chair AVDA. So yes, there's an alphabet soup, but and I think it hasn't been well messaged exactly what every one of these you know, groups does, because we've all been in the middle of a crisis and working at 100 miles per hour, literally chasing our tails 24-7, trying to ensure that we even just get the vaccines. And it is only when we get the vaccines that AVDA will truly, the value is truly then going to be able to be seen as we begin to get them from ports to arms. So you brought up Dr. John Kinkasong, and we have all heard that he is on his way out um, from Africa CDC, has been given the honor of being nominated to lead PEPFAR, which many of our listeners are very familiar with. That's the U.S. government's large AIDS program. I wanted to ask you how you thought this transition at the helm of the Africa CDC would affect leadership of the COVID-19 vaccine rollout. 
Well, first of all, I mean, and I think I've said this before, that it would be really unfair to place both the fate of Africa CDC and the vaccine rollout, not even just the vaccine rollout, but just the COVID response on John's shoulders. A man or a woman does not an institution make, and he has placed the institution well on its path. He was the founding director of Africa CDC and has given it the visibility and the profile it needs. And I also see his his moving on to, you know, this, I call him now his excellency, because of course, he's not just been sent to, to, he's not just been appointed to head PEPFAR, but he has also been appointed ambassador at large. So he's actually been made a United States ambassador um, to the, for the United States government, and then will head this global AIDS program, which includes PEPFAR. And we actually hope will include wider global health security efforts going forward. So, I mean, I see it as a positive for the continent, really. I mean, I think it's paradoxical because saying saying goodbye, you know, is never easy for the continent to somebody who has been so visible through, through the pandemic. I mean, we all see him every Thursday with his briefings. I think in terms of vaccine rollout, that in particular is in good hands. The vaccine rollout is left, is really, you know, of course, Africa CDC as a agency, but it is, again, it's a scientific agency, it's not a delivery agency. And I think there's been a little bit of confusion over that as well. It's a bit like, you know, us discussing my platform and also AVDA, it's like the, the vaccine, because I've been active in vaccine equity advocacy, that's not necessarily AVDA's job, but John has also been very active in, in advocacy and advocacy for vaccine dis- distribution and delivery, but that's not necessarily Africa CDC's job, you know, he has taken that on as extra. So I think it, it is paradoxical. I think, yes, we Africa will be sad to see him go, but also where he's going, the burden of disease is greatest in Africa. So his moving on to such a large role, I think also benefits the continent. So again, I would like to see the positive side of that. And of course, wishing him all the best as, as he goes forward for confirmation. I mean, he has now been officially nominated and now awaits confirmation by the US Senate, which really should be a foregone conclusion. Um, because, you know, this is the, the first time that as we have agitated for somebody from the global south, yes, of course, John is an American citizen, but he is also a child of Africa, born in Cameroon, in West Africa, and raised to a large part on the continent before he went over overseas for his university studies. So it means the world is listening to our cries for decolonization. It's a very creative appointment in that they have both appointed somebody from the global south but because the rules as it were from the from a lot of these countries mean that they can only have a person with certain nationality so of course but this time they have said okay the rules say we must have somebody who is a US who is an American and we have now put him in charge of this program that really affects mostly Africans so it's a welcome development and I think Africa CDC will be just fine. Excellent, excellent. So now I have a question for you about community engagement. And I think of it as you speak about you and Dr. John Nkikasong doing, basically filling in, you know, you said he referred to the coalition of the willing, you know, everybody is doing work that is not in their official job description in this pandemic. And I think it was Professor Koresha Abdul-Karim who referred to it as 
building the ship as we are sailing it, you know? And I think in that realm, the community engagement has also been a 24-7 job, you know, whether it started with advocacy around research, which, which the African Alliance was involved with, and now community engagement as we think about hopefully larger scale vaccine rollout. And as you well know, even the most perfect medical product is useless if people are not willing to use it and do not have access to it. I love this ports to arms phrase that you used, and I will be using it more going forward with your permission. But I wanted to ask you, you know, how do you think the community engagement and vaccine confidence work has been going so far? I know that you have a broad view of the entire continent. So from your perch, are there any bright lights that you see that you would like to share with us or any red flags that really concern you that we can take into account as we push this work forward? Oh, Maza, that is that is a huge one. That's a that's a an entire podcast on its own. I mean, community engagement, I for me, and I've said this in my leadership of the Vaccine Delivery Alliance for Africa, is the absolute bedrock of what we do. I mean, logistics and community engagement, you know, the logisticians get the vaccines in. Community engagement for everybody, but particularly ensuring that we don't forget the underserved, that we don't forget those who are living in areas affected by conflict and crisis, who are IDPs, who are refugees. I think it's underappreciated is the word that I would use. And, you know, we at the beginning of this sort of rollout of vaccines around the world, there was a lot of talk around vaccine confidence and vaccine hesitancy. And then as vaccines became so, so easily available and accessible in the Western world, we heard that begin to fade away. I mean, except in the US, where it, of course, United States of America, where it's become an ideological issue and almost a, you know, a badge of honor not to be vaccinated in some communities because it means that you support a certain political political figure who himself or herself is vaccinated, which is just ludicrous and I can't understand. But we've seen that Community engagement has become, I mean, it's different in the global north because what community engagement has become in some countries is providing them with incentives, is, you know, is is massive vaccination campaigns around um, stadia and, and not just communities, but almost tribes, you know, like the Tottenham Stadium in the in the UK and the Arsenal Stadium. But for us in Africa, it's so much more, it's so much deeper, it's so much more work because there's the trust factor is sadly, sadly lacking. And um, I don't know where to start really with the value that I would place on the work that is already being done, like groups such as, you know, yourselves, the African Alliance, and, and so many others who are doing the deep, deep digging um, for the planting season, if you want to say, even before the vaccines arrive. I mean, for some of you, it feels like you've been tilling the ground, you've watered, you've tilled, you've watered, the seeds haven't come, you've tilled, you've watered, the seeds haven't come. It's been an incredibly frustrating uh, moment and not just frustrating because we're tilling and we're watering and yet, you know, people are dying. You know, in some communities, people people are dying. And then we're also at the same time hearing that, okay, now you take the vaccine. We, we send you the vaccine. We said, you must take the vaccine. You take the vaccine. We say, oh, no, sorry, you cannot come into our countries because this vaccine we sent you, we now do not recognize it for travel from your country. All of this is a job of those at community engagement level to keep encouraging people to get, get their vaccines, to keep encouraging them that there is hope at the end of the day. And so, I mean, 
I cannot emphasize enough how much we have to keep hope alive. And it is only at community level, it is only by working with, with everybody, be it sex workers, be it nurses and healthcare workers who in some communities themselves feel totally abandoned because they're not getting paid. In Nigeria, resident doctors have been on strike and in public hospitals. And yet we need to engage them at all levels to ensure that everybody remains safe. Community engagement is the linchpin of what we do. We couldn't do any of this without the CSOs and the, the, the community organizers on the ground. Mm, mm, well, thank you for that support. I know you have been a, a longtime advocate for the work that is done on the community level, so we really appreciate it. If you don't mind now, I want to pivot a little bit to some personal questions. I saw from your Twitter feed that you yourself had come down with quite a hectic case of COVID-19 recently and even lost somebody in your extended family network to the virus. So first of all, condolences to you and your family. And secondly, I would first ask before asking my question, how are you feeling? Thank you, Maza. I am feeling a lot stronger. It was seven weeks almost, the first four weeks of which I didn't know which way was up, um, quite literally. And every day I find myself, I tell my husband, I feel like a granny because, you know, by sort of 6 p.m. I need to take a little nap <laughs> if I've done quite a bit of work. So it's, I mean, COVID is, is no joke, as everybody says. And even though I had had you know, one vaccine by the time I was exposed, I guess, it still hit me like a ton of bricks. And till today, I'm, I'm feeling the effects of it. But I'm one of the lucky ones. I'm very, very privileged. And I'm still here. And I really, I'm hoping that it doesn't, you know, doesn't signify long COVID. It's a harrowing, horrible disease on many levels. And for many on our continent, they're not even able to get the healthcare. I mean, even in the, in the, in the global north, I mean, of course, they're telling people at, at the height of it, they were saying just, you know, get an oximeter. If your oxygen drops below 92, call an ambulance. But we don't have those options in many of the African countries, you know, and, and what we're seeing is people dying at home, like the member of, you know, my extended household that you just referred to who collapsed. Um, at home with three little children screaming down the end of the phone and saying, mummy's not breathing, mummy can't breathe, she's lying on the floor. And she was dead by the next morning because of a lack of oxygen and a lack of emergency health care. Ah, yeah, anyway. Yeah, and it is heartbreaking to think of that on the scale, you know, of 10,000 people dying every day, you know, so for every for 10,000 of those families, it is children and extended families that are, are feeling the brunt of this. So first of all, you know, glad that you're feeling better and hope you continue to feel better. And my question, and I think you've partially answered it, is how have these personal losses and your sort of personal um, trajectory with COVID affected the way you engage with your work? You know, and I, I think it's sort of a, a broader question for us as African Alliance. You know, we have been encouraged um, by the group that we work with at global level, the People's Vaccine Alliance, to really try and highlight stories from the global south of human resilience and the struggle with COVID. And we are always in two minds about it. Obviously, we want the voices from the global south to be amplified, but we do worry that we don't want to exploit people's pain and suffering and the death that people deal with. 
And I wanted to ask you, you know, one, with your personal experience and sharing that, do you think that it changes the minds of decision makers at the relevant tables? Do you think it makes a difference to share these stories and to continue amplifying them? I think it absolutely does. I think if we, again, go back to the, the you know, learn from the lessons learned from HIV AIDS. It wasn't until we started to hear from, you know, prominent leaders who had lost family members or who were acknowledging that AIDS was real and was killing people on the continent that the the continent started to take it seriously. So how has this affected me and my advocacy to, or, or in my role? It's made me even crosser. It's made me even more upset at the lack of equity and the sheer injustice of it all. Um, You know, when I see the indignities that people are having to suffer, when I see the lack of leadership in, in messaging around the pandemic, when I see the irresponsibility of those who are still, you know, maskless and having parties and you know meeting in person in huge numbers totally oblivious to the fact that they could be the source of the next variant that is going to evade the vaccine that is going to keep us locked up for the next three years in a perpetual cycle of lockdowns it's possible and having been so ill myself it's not just dead or not dead with COVID you know there is serious it seriously affects the quality of one's life. And I'm lucky in that I don't have to leave the house every day. So I was able to be at home, maybe sometimes do a little bit of work on the day's work that I could lift my head and type an email or dictate something. But there are those who, it could lose them, their entire livelihoods. It could destroy the trajectory of their lives. They're young girls who have stopped going to school now because of COVID, who have been married off, who've been sold literally into marriage because of the socioeconomic effects of COVID. It is not just a health crisis. And having it personally and and the pain and and watching this family around us who've been affected so devastatingly by it. I mean, I know many people who have died of COVID, but I've never been on the other end of a phone of a nine-year-old, a six-year-old, a five-year-old screaming, mama can't breathe. And that is, um, it tells me that we all just need to do more. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Gosh, okay. So now I'm going to ask you a question, which I realize could be an entire podcast series on its own. So forgive me for this, um, but I cannot end the discussion without asking you what it's like to be an African feminist woman in this work. I think anyone who's heard you speak knows what a strong advocate you are for women's rights and the need for African women's voices to be truly heard. And I know that even though it is 2021 and this should not be the case, being a woman, an African woman at the tables that you have access to is still difficult, especially in Africa on the continent and working in the kind of sphere of African public health. So, and I know you had referenced this, there was a time a few years ago when you even had to physically climb on a table to make the point um, of being heard. So just for our listeners, if you could talk to us a little bit about this experience, you know, and tell us how optimistic you are as a feminist. Do you see the needle moving at all? Or do you feel that you are constantly just banging your head against the wall? And I'm curious to hear what 
you tell your daughter, um, but also what you tell your young nephews. You know, I know a lot of what you do is with the hope of things being different for the next generation. So, and we often talk about what we tell young women, but I'm also quite curious about what somebody in your position would tell young men as well. Uh-huh, Maza. That's, yeah, that's a whole two-hour conversation. I don't even know where to start. When I started this journey, when I got, got involved with this, I didn't envisage gender, pandemic, response, vaccine, equity, justice. I didn't envisage all of those words in a word salad, um, but I should have recognized that we're not quite there yet in Africa to accept fully a woman who, or women who are vocal, confident, competent, and not afraid of who they are. So it's been a journey, as I've said. I've um, proudly championed the cause of women, the cause of of anybody who would be othered really in the world. I mean, my my whole life has been about social justice and there is nothing that upsets me more than feeling like somebody has been cheated or somebody has been treated unfairly. It's it's just, it's visceral for me. I I feel like I need to immediately jump in and, and get involved. So to be in this moment with this pandemic, there have been moments for me of tears as a woman leader fighting for the generations to come. Yes, I say that I'm fighting for Danielle, my daughter, who you know is the absolute light of, of, of our lives and who herself is incredibly accomplished. But every time I want to give up, I think, what am I going to tell Danielle? How do I tell her that I couldn't take the pressure? And so I gave up. I don't know. I mean, Maza, it's... It's so deep because I feel like we're fighting on all fronts for equity, vaccine equity, gender equity, African equity, decolonization. It's all a giant fight and one that we must win. So when I talk to my daughter, I tell her, you never, ever, ever give up. You never give up. You can go into your room and you can cry because that's okay. You don't descend into the depths, but you stand on what you have been taught and what you believe. I tell my young nephews and those that I called sons the same thing. I don't think there's a different message for for young men and for young women. For all of them, I say to them that my prayer is that my ceiling will become your floor, that where I end is where you will begin. As high as I got will be your first step. And so I have to fight to get as high as I possibly can as a woman, as a black woman, as a, you know, there are those who have referred to me as uppity, <laughs> you know, because if you're confident and you're well-spoken and you're, you're not afraid to speak out, then you're uppity. There are those who have, you know, who, who have said that, you know, you're just, you're not actually fighting for equity, you're positioning And I say, yes, I'm positioning, but I'm not positioning myself. I'm positioning the next generation. I'm positioning those who are coming behind me. And if I don't stand and having done all, continue to stand, then what 
example am I leaving for them? So in this pandemic, I think, and thank you for asking that question, because I think too many people assume that it's easy. Too many people think it's, it's not enough what you have to say. It needs to look perfect as well. And one day we will talk about the mental health effects of, of this pandemic on, and we'll talk about the gendered effects of this pandemic. But as a woman leader in this moment in world history, it's been an incredible privilege. And it's also been incredibly challenging and something that one day I hope I'm able to walk others through and, and teach them what I've learned. Mm, and I, I love um, that phrase, you know, your, your ceiling, be it, your ceiling being be your daughter's floor. Yeah. And this notion of always working for what comes after us. And it reminds me of do you remember that Audre Lorde poem where she says, it's better to speak, you know, because even when we are silent, we are still afraid. So it's better to speak knowing that we were never meant to survive. You know, there always will be people after you. So better to go ahead and be brave and speak. And it's always lovely to, to watch you on these TV shows because you say things that other people will not say. And women are often ostracized for saying and being sort of vocal about. So I am always very grateful to see you on TV and thank you as, a, as another African woman in this space. It is really inspiring to, to watch you. And so Dr. Alakija, I'm at the end of my questions. I wanted to give you an opportunity to just tell our listeners, is there anything that we have not asked you today that you wish you could have shared, whether it is about your optimism, your concerns, any highlights from the last year, any just final comments as we wrap up the discussion? Oh, thanks, Maza. I, I think on the gender thing, I would like to say something else. I think I would like to say that we need, as a continent, as a people, we need to be conscious and deliberate about pulling women up and providing women with the skills necessary to transform the environments that they're in. No, no, not to transform the environment they're in, because that would imply that there's something wrong with the woman. But what I'm saying is provide transformative leadership in moments of crisis, because we've seen what Jacinda Ardern, for instance, has done in New Zealand. We, we've seen what women in leadership can do. And too often we provide training programs for women. You know, somebody will say to, to me, someone like me, potentially, oh, you know, Dr. Lakaja, let's give you some voice training um, or let's give you some you know some speaking lessons or whatever it is but it is often the environments that we need to change we need institutional change around women we don't need to change the woman but it is only when we have a critical mass of women in Africa in the global south and other low middle income countries of the world in the world generally actually it is only when we have a critical mass that we're truly going to be able to achieve what we know we can as those who, you know, that, that book, I think, Half the Sky, yes, because that's, that's what we are. And so that's something that I have really strongly learned in this past year and a half, almost now 20, 20 odd months of this crisis, that it is institutional change that is needed, but we need to help the world to understand that we don't need fixing. It is the world around us that needs fixing. 
And um, for me, that's been one of really one of the biggest lessons because there's so many incredible young women, not so young women out there who don't step out and don't step into that limelight because they're afraid because of the, the barbs and the abuse. And, the you know, there, there, there are men who have called me and told me to shut up and to, you know, in, in, in this space, who have not, not literally shut up, but, you know, basically don't be so vocal. Let, him, let somebody else say what you're saying, et cetera, et cetera. Um, that they would never say to a man. And we need to change those environments. Mm -hmm. Well, I think that every time you are on the air, even though I know it's exhausting and I'm sure you take abuse that many of us would not even be able to imagine, we are very grateful for it. And I'm also very grateful, and I know that our listeners are, that you made the time on what is a very busy period to speak to us on the COVID-19 Conversations podcast. Dr. Yodi Alakija, we really, really appreciate you and everything that you do. Thank you. Thank you, Maza. It's been a delight talking to you. Thank you so much for listening. We hope today's discussion has resonated with you, provoked new thoughts, and provided you with evidence-based information as we all work to ensure that the global response to COVID-19 is accountable, equitable, and community-owned. This episode of the COVID-19 Conversations podcast was produced in conjunction with Volume. Our executive producer is Tian Johnson. I am Maaza Siyum. You can follow us on Twitter at Afri underscore Alliance or email us at info at africanalliance.org.za to give us feedback on this episode or to suggest topics for future episodes. Also, please don't forget to sign up at africanalliance.org.za to never miss key news. 